Good morning. Our New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Good morning, everyone. It's freezing today. It was freezing last night at the men's master. A great time, but my nose, the problem with having a big nose, it gets cold and it just won't warm up. And then today it's just reinforced. Now what we're going to do is look at my big nose. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Give you something to laugh about as we come to a very serious topic today. Uh, I must say, I, I don't find it easy to preach through a topic like today. And it's not because it's not kind of clear in the Bible, it's because actually, pastorally, this is an area, as we talk about sexual faithfulness in the end, this is an area that pastorally we have big problems in. And every time I preach on something like this, I cannot help but think of the 25, 30 people over the last 10 years that have had serious issues and lost marriages or whatever it is. So I come with a heavy heart, I need to pray for myself, you can pray for me as I speak, because God's word is very clear it's hard to live it out. Now, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we come with all sorts of experiences in life, but with a heavy heart that so often sexual sin ends people's faith, marriages, uh, connection to you. Father, we do pray that we'll take your word seriously, that we won't shrink back from it, and we do thank you so much for the forgiveness found in the Lord Jesus as we come to something like this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I talked about the pub test last week. Uh, the pub test when it comes to murder is pretty simple. Uh, it passes the pub test because it's out there. It's easy to talk about those people out there shouldn't be murderers. That's very easy. Imagine the pub test for adultery. Imagine the tables in the pub and all the different conversations as you talk about things around sexual faithfulness. Uh, did, she hear, did you hear she's leaving that man? Great! He's an awful man, never liked him. That's terrible. What's she going to do? Where's she going to find support and money and so on? The next table. Did you hear he had an affair with the woman in the office? That's awful. How could he do it to her? How could he do such a thing? Oh, they never really loved each other anyway. It was always just convenience. Did you hear about the, the friend down the road who, they're getting a divorce? Oh, at last, I've been hoping for that. Those kids don't need that dad around. Those kids do need that dad around. The conversations are endless around the pub tables. It's not clear because it's in here. And we all have our own personal experiences when it comes to sexual faithfulness and what it is to actually not commit adultery. It's not a good issue for the pub test. Here's a state of Australia from 2018 from Relationships Australia. Uh, just a little snapshot, if you like. It's in your outline. 
Uh, around the world at the moment, they reckon that in a marriage, about 50% of men will betray their wife at least once. That's incredible. Or 20 to 30% of women will do the same for their husband. Uh, people who are unfaithful in one relationship, three times more likely in the next to be unfaithful. Uh, in Australia, men say they'd be more hurt by sexual infidelity than they would by emotional infidelity, but for women, it's the other way around. The men and women think differently about these things. In 2019, 33% of marriages ended in divorce, which is actually lower than people would expect normally. That rate's been going down in recent times, if you look at the charts, because less people are getting married. And so there's sort of an impact going on. So it's not for a good reason that it's going down. And the average Aussie marriage, when you take out the outliers, the kind of quick divorces after getting married, you take out all the outliers, is around 12 years, which is not great for the length of a marriage. Uh, all this is to say relationships are complicated. Uh, we already know this. Relationships are complicated, personal, and it's not really just the modern world. Uh, it's always been the case. Uh, ever since, since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden, it's been complicated. And so as we think about the seventh command, do not commit adultery, we're talking about the real world. We're talking about real people, real things that touch us personally, real situations of our life. And so the obvious question might be, why does God care? Why does God care? Surely the mood of our age is, if it feels good, do it. And if God has given us this powerful internal feeling, these sexual feelings, why then do we have to keep a standard? Why can't we just express them in all of its fullness? It's, it's the obvious question if God has given us this gift. Well, let's have a think about it from the Old Testament point of view to start with, uh, and we're going to ask a question, why does God care about sexual unfaithfulness? Thinking from the individual point of view, firstly. Uh, so come to Genesis, Genesis 2.24. Now, these passages are mostly in your outline today. Genesis 2.24, God made Adam and Eve and he said to them, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they both became one flesh. Verse 25, Adam and Eve were both naked and they felt no shame. So God made Adam and Eve and he made them in such a way that they can join together. They can leave behind their previous families and come together as one flesh. Uh, express sexually, they can come together as one, one flesh and express relationship-wise as coming together in a complementary way. Together they are one. That's why our marriage vows, the Anglican marriage vows say, what God has joined together, let no one separate. It's a serious vow as we marry people. And what we call marriage is really the joining together of two people. Uh, forget society's definitions, forget what people think it is, when one particular woman and one particular man come together as one sexually, they're married in God's eyes. It's a coming together as one. No matter what our society thinks the definition is. And so those promises are lifelong commitments to one another. Now, after the fall, not surprisingly, God's intention was quickly turned around. Last week I said murder is the first sin. Well, how quickly do people give up on one flesh? Uh, in Genesis 4, Lamech 
is not content with one wife. He wants two wives, and then he wants to rule over these two women. Immediately a distorted view of God's view of marriage. It doesn't get much better when God chose Abraham's family as the promised family. Uh, Genesis 19, here's a horrible picture. Uh, Lot offers his daughters to strangers for sex, and then later on, his daughters get him drunk so as to sleep with him and become pregnant. Okay, Genesis 38, Judah sleeps with his daughter-in-law Tamar, thinking she's a prostitute. Genesis 39, uh, Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph and forces herself upon him. He runs away, but then he's in jail, accused of sexual uh, things. If we thought the 60s and the sexual revolution was when the world changed, we haven't read Genesis. (laughs) We're not even out of Genesis. There's 50 chapters in Genesis. You get to Genesis 39 and you get the picture very, very clearly. People have been turning their back on God's way for sex ever since, from the very beginning. And it doesn't help to have a rule that's really firm. Uh, The laws of the Old Testament, I'm just going to pick one of them, Leviticus 20.10 says, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbour, both adulterer and adulteress are to be put to death. And you think, that's it then. Okay, no no more adultery. Because if there's adultery, there's death. So no more. Of course, I don't need to tell you the sordid sexual history of Israel. Read your Old Testament for yourself, you get a snapshot of what that looks like. But of course, the lowest moment, the lowest moment has got to be David and Bathsheba. I picked them last week for murder, let's pick them again for adultery. Uh, We pick up the parable from Nathan the prophet in 2 Samuel 12. Uh, He comes to David and he says, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor, The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little lamb ewe that he'd bought. He raised it, he grew it up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arm. It was like a daughter to him. Then a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. It's an Old Testament parable. Uh, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. In an echo of last week again, Bathsheba was all Uriah had. He loved her. She was precious to him, and David took her. You are that man, David. It's chilling, right? David's response in 2 Samuel 12 shows he knows how bad this is. I have sinned against the Lord. It's not I've sinned against Uriah, I've sinned against Bathsheba. I've sinned against the Lord. It's to God that he has sinned. That's important to hear. Sexual sin, first and foremost, is against the Lord, like all sin. It's against the Lord. It's not what God wants. But then David should have died by the law. That was the consequences of adultery, and yet God showed him mercy. And you can read the rest of that story. I don't mean to be crass, but there's no getting around the truth here, that if God's anointed King David can't keep his pants up, what hope is there for humanity? What hope is there? 
If King David can't, how can we? God made sex with purpose within marriage, but in the Old Testament at least, human humanity has distorted it from the beginning. And if that's not sad enough, there's another reason why it's really sad, and that's the corporate picture. So I talked about the individual picture, but let's think about the Old Testament corporate reason why sexual faithfulness matters to God. Uh, the Old Testament uses uh, the marriage between God and his people as an image to understand God's love and faithfulness. It's used in lots of different places. I'm just going to pick up one example of that from Ezekiel, and I warn you, it comes with an MA plus rating. This is in the Bible, I'm just reading the Bible, okay? But it comes with an MA plus rating. Read Ezekiel sometime to blow your mind. Ezekiel 16, verse 8. I passed by, says God, and when I looked at you, Israel, and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your naked body. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became mine. So God entered into a marriage relationship. He loved Israel. She was helpless, naked, and God loved her as his own. But then verse 15, she trusted in her beauty and used her fame to become a prostitute. You lavished favours on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. You went to him and he possessed your beauty. Uh, just this chapter goes on to talk about promiscuity, genitals, brazen prostitution and arousal. MA 15 plus sort of stuff. It's a very explicit part of the Bible, but it's a very powerful image. God's people turned their backs, spurned him, and went running to the foreign nations. Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, like a, like a desperate lover. There's 10 chapters of this unfolding in Ezekiel. It's powerful and it's really sad because these nations and their gods, Israel wanted them. They didn't want the God who loved them as husband and yet God is faithful if you see this picture this is the picture of the Old Testament people of God and yet God is faithful and holds on to a remnant of his people and through his people the Lord comes into the world it's quite incredible to see God's faithfulness when it's expressed this way and so the seventh commandment is it is a witness against individual adultery but it's a powerful witness against the corporate adultery of a nation against God. The sin of adultery should be punished, yet God is merciful. So keeping that Old Testament background in mind, individual and corporate, let's jump across to the New Testament. Uh, the same question again, but this time with Jesus. Why does Jesus care about sexual unfaithfulness? Let's think about the individual reason first. Uh, it's the problem of lust, Matthew 5, 27. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, this is drop the mic moment. But imagine sitting there and he changes adultery into this. He's saying it doesn't matter if you're married or you're single, if you look with lust, you're committing adultery. Drop the mic, walk away. Jesus has just said you're all sinners. Everybody is a sinner. Keeping the seventh commandment now is about sexual purity we live in an age where we know sex sells 
We know it. Uh, the 50s advertisers latched onto it and they've been doing it ever since. That's why you drive down the street and on the back of a bus there's a woman in underwear. Why do we need a woman in underwear on the back of a bus? Because it sells. Because she's selling dog food or something. Who knows what she's selling? <laughs> TV adverts have men who are fully ripped with their shirts opened up. Why? Because sex sells. People will look lustfully at these men and women and have no idea what the product is, but sex sells. Uh, the advertisers know it. But humanity hasn't changed since Genesis. We've probably just refined and increased the ways we can get these images out, we can get these pictures out, we can get these opportunities for lust out. Of course, the legalists amongst us will already be thinking, so what exactly counts as lust? Is a second look lust, really? So if I look once, it's not lust, but if I look twice, it's lust. Right, I'll have a long stare once. <laughs> if I look and appreciate, isn't it like art? I appreciate art. That's a work of God's art. Is that lust? Well, you know what the legalists amongst us can do. They find a way. Uh, there's a famous legal case in the 60s uh, where the magistrate, it was the first time pornography in society was kind of ruled upon. Is this inappropriate in society or not? And he was asked to judge it. And his judgment was this. He said, I'm not going to attempt to define pornography, but I know it when I see it. And that's true. That's like lust. I'm not going to attempt to define lust, but I know it when I feel it. I know what it is. It's hard to define. It's hard to put it delicately, at least. If, it, if it's stirring your loins, it's lust. You don't often hear loins in a sermon, do you? <laughs> it's lust if it fires the sexual imagination. What's going to happen next? It's lust if it's going to turn into something physical immediately after. We all know it when we see it. We all know it when we feel it. Men and women lust, but in different ways quite, quite often. And these days, we're not supposed to make generalities about anyone, so, so I'm going to make generalities, but just apologise. For most men, visual things is what we lust after for most men. Uh, there is no innocent second look. The second look is a leer what it is there's no innocent looking at porn i'm just finding out what the other guys are looking at that's not a thing there's no innocent watching tv shows with explicit sex scenes there's not even any innocent go to the beach or very rarely innocently going to the beach there's no such thing as innocent getting a massage with a happy ending did you hear about this earlier in the year uh, Ravi Zacharias is very public, and so I would never name someone unless it was a very public thing, but Ravi Zacharias, wonderful ministry. I've got bunches of books on my shelf written by him. I've watched things that he's done. After he passed away, Christianity ex Today exposed his life, and he'd been for his whole ministry career getting massages with happy endings. Doesn't that change how you think about it, his ministry? That's really sad. That is lust acted upon. For most women, it's not often the things you see. It's what you read. It's the fantasies that play out in your mind. It's the other relationship that you'd like to have. It's the Facebook picture of, ooh, that's the kind of thing I would love to have. 
I know of men who have said to me, they think nothing of their wife reading Fifty Shades of Grey. And I said, come on, mate, what are you doing? She's filling her mind. How can she not? It plays out into a lust and adultery. I know of women who have said, gee, that Game of Thrones show is really good, we should watch it to their husbands. And I say, no, that's soft porn. You do that, you're just opening the door to either a former sin or opening his mind to things that aren't you for a sexual outlet. Last week when we talked about anger being murder, I mean, everyone would have put their hand up if, if I had asked. I wonder if I said, put your hand up if you've ever lusted. The room would be full, but gee, it'd be awkward. Lust is in our hearts, isn't it? The Apostle Paul talks about the danger, the inner danger of sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 6. He says all the other sins that we commit are outside of the body. The murderers are out there. But whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own, you are bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. See, sexual sin is easily hidden inside. It's in your heart. It'll be easy to think, no one knows. No one knows what's going on in here and here. And yet, if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. God knows, and you are bringing together the Holy Spirit with unholy behaviour. Therefore, honour your body, honour your God with your body. Uh, what does that mean? What does it mean to honour honor God? I'm going to be a little bit practical here. Uh, that means we need to hear the Apostle Paul's radical response to sexual sin. He says, flee. He says, think of Joseph and run away. The appropriate response is radical fleeing. Uh, Jesus goes further. Matthew 5, 29, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Men with visual sin, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Jesus is not into body mutilation, so don't quickly cut off your hand. But he is into sin is highly serious. And there's hell to pay for sin. And lust is a huge sin amongst us. And so we need to act seriously. If you're addicted to romance books, if they cause you to lust in your mind, burn the books. Why have you got these books? If you are filled with lust going to the beach... Stay at home and have a cold shower. If you're watching porn on your computer, smash your computer. It's better than cutting your hand off. Smash your computer. If your phone is the lust gateway, get a dumb phone. It's so easy. You can do text on a dumb phone. You just can't look at images. Get a dumb phone. If you are someone who dates endlessly and expect nothing to happen... I encourage you to get married. We can do it in 30 days' time. That's all the government requires, 30 days. Get married or end the relationship if it's causing you to lust. If you are married, work on your sex life. It's a funny thing to say from the pulpit. Wonderful pastoral implications. Preventative implications. 
Within a marriage, it's just as ungodly to deny physical intimacy as it is to give in to lust. Both are a sin. Because in marriage, sex is a part of the covenantal relationship of one flesh. And I think I've talked to as many people who are, have problems with lust as people who have a sexless marriage. And they both cause the same ends. Someone showed me a very helpful way to think about sexuality in marriage. I think this is the right way to think about it if you are a Christian who's married. I say, I'm not a heterosexual. I'm not a homosexual. I'm not a bisexual. I am a heathersexual. (laughs) That is the only sexual I can be as a Christian man. And she can only be a Jason sexual. It's awkward with three Jasons, but... Last name, middle names, identity numbers, God knows, right? We need to work in marriage on our sex life. And we need to think of ourselves as only having one outlet. And if we're not married, we don't have any outlets. And we're to be godly. And every married couple is going to be single at some point. That is the sad reality. If you're married now, it won't always be the case. You won't die together at 100 in bed holding hands. It's just unlikely. So you're single before marriage. We're all single for parts of our life, and we need to be godly and pure. There are many things we can do to help ourselves. I don't open my shirt to show my Chris Hemsworth muscles (laughs) in church. I'm a middle-aged man. No, that wouldn't help anyone, right? I don't know. None of us want others to stumble. And so that's why Christians dress modestly and think about the other and even the way we act and we behave. We're not out to flirt. That's not the way we behave as Christians. Uh, The world is obsessed with sex and lust, but not Christ's church. Surely not Christ's church. Uh, Years ago, a Christian sister came to me and said, I I love our church. I said, great, I love it when people love our church. That's excellent. But, But why specifically? And she said, because here is the one place I can go and not be hit on. I catch a bus, I get hit on. I catch a train, I get hit on. I go to my workplace, I get hit on. That's really sad. But she comes to church and the men are her friends. She comes to church and she has brothers. That's wonderful. That's what church should be like. This is a place where we don't lust, we don't commit adultery, but we actually are a family together in Christ. So at an individual level, since even lust is adultery, it's radical and right to flee and to be different. Whatever that means for you, I want to encourage you to pursue it. Put in the rules in place that you need. Put in the systems. Talk to the person you need to talk to. Get help. Whatever it is, flee. That's individually. What about corporately? Jesus cares about sexual unfaithfulness because there's a corporate dimension to it all. Like in the Old Testament, there's a much bigger reason why marriage matters. And it's hinted at in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says to Christian converts who are still sleeping with temple prostitutes in Corinth, he says to them, Do you not know your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said that two become one flesh. All sex is becoming one flesh. 
but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Sex is physical and personal, but for Christians, there's a greater reality even, because we're all spiritually connected together. You could say none of our sins are independent. We're connected through the spirit in the body of the church. And even more, this is why marriage really matters to God. Ephesians 5, as Paul speaks to husbands and wives, he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. See, little marriage, marriages amongst us, point to big marriage, marriage of Christ and his church. He's saying human marriage should be a little model of God's faithfulness. We should be able to see Christian marriages and see in them a little picture of what Christ and his church is supposed to be. Whether we're Christians who are single or married, as we are sexually pure, we honour God's picture for faithfulness in marriage. And we dishonour it when as a body we are tainted by sexual sin. More than that, we rob people of a picture, a powerful personal picture of God's love and faithfulness. And that is a real travesty. Because in the end, where are we going? In the end, where Christ's people are going is to a marriage. You know the picture from Revelation? Revelation 19, 7, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. See, God has been faithful through all of history. You think about the sexual sin in Genesis we started talking about. All of history, God has been faithful to drawing out his people, preparing a bride, the church, for Christ. And we are individually a part of that picture. And so it's like our sexual sin stains the bride's dress. The fine linen is the righteous acts of God's people, but our sexual sin stains the dress, which is a terrible picture. We've all failed, haven't we? If we're honest. If you don't fail with sexual sin, I'm sorry to paint you with that brush and I'm, I'm praising God for you. Help others to learn how you do it. <laughs> Be very encouraging. But we have mostly all failed in this area. But God has not. And God has been faithful to us all this time. Which drives us back to the cross, doesn't it? If murder and anger drove us back to the cross, how much more this one? If you've ever lusted in your heart, praise God you can come to the foot of the cross. Praise God that every time you've taken a second look, every time your mind has wandered, those sins have been paid for. The seventh commandment is a challenge individually and as magnified as you see the picture of God and his people. But praise God that in Christ we can be forgiven. And that means a new and radical life. If you haven't turned to Jesus yet, I want to encourage you to do so now. Uh, put your faith in him. Make the day today the day. It's a weird day. I became a Christian when I heard about the seventh commandment, but there's all sorts of stories out there. Repent and believe and trust him. If you are a Christian, put it behind you. Don't learn to live with lust. Leave it behind and get help if you can't leave it behind. Don't flirt with adultery. 
flee it. And if you find sexual sin besets, there is help. And part of that help is this body. And I think we as a church have to wake up to the reality that some are really struggling. And if you're not, pray for, meet with, encourage, hold accountable those who are. Don't judge them for being the worst sinners in the world. It's just another sin. Be realistic. I think the church is most struggling with this in the Western world. Our 6pm church are going to hear this talk tonight and feel it even more than we do. Pray for, support and encourage those that are sinning this way that we might see a turnaround. But God has given us a great challenge and a great saviour. We have been forgiven at the foot of the cross. What a wonderful truth. The seventh command just drives us to praise him for that. Let's do it. Our Heavenly Father, we do praise you for your faithfulness to your people. We praise you, though, that we are sinners and that we have fallen short in the area of lust. You are a mighty saviour. We thank you that you've taken away all those stains and washed us clean. And so, Father, from this day, help us to flee immorality and walk after Christ's holiness. And we pray it in his name. Amen.